All right, if you want to take your Bibles with me, we're going to go to second, I'm sorry, first Peter chapter two this morning, back to first Peter chapter two. We've been studying together the well, all of first Peter, so far as what we've gotten through, chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, and we've been looking at verses five through ten for several weeks the different aspects of it, but specifically the last couple of weeks we've been focusing on the priesthood of the believer and what that means for us as believers and as part of the church. So this morning we're going to read just verses 9 and 10. I'm going to focus on verse 9, but uh, as this is the end of the section, we'll look at 9 and 10 together. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9 and verse 10. If you have that, the Bible says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's take a minute to pray, and then we'll look into our message. Our Father and Lord, we just need you right now as we submit ourselves to your word. We know that your authority is there, that this is absolute truth, and that everything that we need to know about our spiritual life is right here in your word. So Lord, as we study this passage together, bring out those things that are important for us to understand the things that you want us to know, so that as we live day by day, we might be pleasing in your sight and might be fulfilling those things which you've called us to. Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us, show us the truth of your word. Lord, help me and fill me with your spirit to be able to preach your word faithfully and truthfully and boldly, knowing that it is your word, it is is your authority, and it is you that is proclaiming this truth to us. So use me as your instrument now, I pray. Just guide us and bless us, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We have been looking at the different aspects of the uh, priesthood of the believer that uh, Peter describes here in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we've seen the character of a holy priesthood that is required by God that are his priests, and we saw last week the spiritual sacrifices that God desires from those that are his spiritual priests in the church as well, and today we're going to focus on one final aspect of Uh, the the priesthood of the believer that Peter gives us here in chapter 2. And I want to point that out by uh, directing your attention to two verses. If you go back to verse 5, we looked at this last week. It says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. And he uses the word holy there to describe the priesthood that we are part of. That word holy means that we have been set apart by God. We have been sanctified by God, and we are in the process of being sanctified by God through our lives. But the whole purpose is so that we are different from a sinful world that is around us, that we reflect the nature of God in our lives and in our character so that people will see him and not us. So that's that aspect of being a holy priesthood, free from sin, apart from the world, um, and, and dedicated to God. And then in verse 9, he uses this additional description of this priesthood, as we read this morning, and he calls us a royal priesthood. Now, the royal priesthood 
um, is what we're going to spend our time looking at. We spent two weeks looking at the aspects of a holy priesthood, and we're not setting that aside. We're adding this aspect of the royal priesthood on top of it. But I want you to remember before we start looking at this idea of the royal priesthood about what the term priesthood really means and why Peter uh, chooses to use the term priesthood instead of just saying you are holy priests and you are royal priests. There's a reason. And the reason he chooses priesthood is because he's emphasizing the unity, as we've talked about, that we have as one body in Christ. And you can see that all through verse 9. There's four different phrases he uses there that we're going to look at. But he says, um, we are a holy priesthood and we are a royal priesthood. In other words, we're not individual priests alone, although God saves us individually and brings us into uh, his family as sons and daughters, we are made part of the one body of Christ. And so we are all one together. And we saw a little bit of that previously. But the fact is, we have to remember that unless we serve and act together, we cannot fulfill the purpose to which God has called us in his church. It is not an individual Christianity. We are part of something bigger than ourselves called the church. And here Peter calls it the priesthood of the believers. And so that's important. And as we've seen previously, the fullness of God's authority and his power can only be exercised and experienced by the church when we operate as a whole rather than just operating as independent believers. So being saved is not just, I'm saved, God is is my God, Jesus is my Savior, I'm going to heaven. No, there's a bigger purpose for it. And it's all found in this idea of being the priesthood of Christ. Okay? So I want you to understand that, first of all, as we talk about the priesthood of the believer. But in verse 9, Peter here uses four phrases that we covered briefly before. And I want to just review them today to emphasize this unity, this oneness that Peter is talking about here. Okay? If you look at the, verse, at the beginning of verse 9, he says, You are a chosen generation. And he uses terminology, in fact, all four of these phrases are terms that were applied to Israel in the Old Testament. They were chosen by God. They were a chosen people. But Peter says we are a chosen generation. And this choosing is by God's foreknowledge. We read about that in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So God has chosen us for a specific purpose. And that is, as we'll see at the end of verse 9, to magnify or to reflect the glories or the excellencies of Jesus Christ in our life, okay? But we are a chosen generation. And it's interesting that he uses the word generation here because when you think of generation, the people that live at the same time are usually called a generation or people that are born within a specific time period. So we have, you know, Generation X and Generation Z and the Baby Boomers and, you know, on and on and on. Those are the generation names. Well, Peter calls us a chosen generation as believers. That doesn't mean that just whoever's alive right now. He's saying that all believers within the church are one generation chosen by God. And we will all live together when we get to heaven. So we truly will be one generation at that point. But that's how he starts. You are a chosen generation, not 
different generations brought together, but one generation. Then he says the royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, not several priests, but a royal priesthood. And we'll look more about that um, going forward. And then he says, you are a holy nation. Again, a term applied to Israel. And he emphasizes that term holy, sanctified, separated unto God. And it's not that we are all from one nation on the earth, but we are all citizens of heaven, which makes us one nation. And it's a holy nation chosen by God for his purpose. Then he says, you are a peculiar people. Now, some translations have this phrase as a people for God's own possession. In other words, he owns us. We belong to him. Again, a term applied to Israel in the Old Testament. But through God, we are bonded together, even though we have so many differences between us. You know, and I was just fellowshipping with a believer earlier this week, and he said, you know, except for Jesus Christ and except for our salvation, you know, we have so many differences. I don't know that we would ever be friends or hang out. And I thought, that's true. If you think about the people in this church, even there are many differences. We all have different common or different uh, um, hobbies and different interests and different skills. And just in normal everyday life, we may never get together to become friends or even have fellowship. But in Christ, we have that commonality which supersedes everything else. And so we are one people. God has made us one people in Christ. And it's that oneness that Peter wants us to remember. Not just an independent believer functioning on my own, doing what God wants me to do. You cannot do what God wants you to do unless you are part of the whole and functioning within the whole. And that's what Peter emphasizes here. And it's the same for the priesthood. Even though we are individual priests before God, we have to act together and serve together and worship together to fulfill the function that God has called us to as one priesthood. And, and the, the goal, obviously, if you look at the end of verse 9, he says, here's the goal, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's the goal of our lives. That's the goal of the church, that people look at us and see Jesus Christ, the excellencies, the character, the perfect nature of Christ in us, not just individually, but as a whole, as the church that we would show forth the excellency of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's the goal. Now, I want to focus on what Peter is talking about when he calls us a royal priesthood for just a minute, so we can, or for a few minutes, so we can understand that. So we need to understand this royal priesthood. We've talked about the aspects of being a holy priesthood. Why does he use the word royal here? Well, First of all, we need to understand that this description, again, is similar to what God describes Israel as in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God, through Moses, told Israel that they were intended to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, that's directly from Exodus 19, 6, God's words, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what's interesting is that God in Israel ordained specific men from specifically the tribe of Levi who had to be in the line of Aaron to be priests. No one else in Israel could be a priest in the tabernacle 
or in the temple. And yet God himself calls Israel a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests. So in order to understand what he means by this, we need to understand the overall purpose for the priests. And we're not going to go through all of the functions. We did that last time that the priests had. But overall, their main function was to intercede between God and the people. They were the middle ground. They were the avenue through which God worked. Now, Moses in Israel was, in its essence, the prophet. God spoke through Moses, but it was the priests who interceded for the people. The priests brought the sacrifices to the altar. The people couldn't do that. They had to bring the sacrifices to the priests. The priests offered them on the altar. It was the priests who offered the incense. It was the priests who were basically the religious leaders of Israel. And so they interceded between God and the people of Israel. And that was everything the priests did. It boiled down to that one function, as to be intercessors. But the nation of Israel was also called by God to be intercessors as well. Not specifically in the way the priests did, but they became intercessors between God and all of the unsaved heathen nations around them. God chose Israel for that purpose, to become intercessors between God and the rest of the world. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says this to Israel, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. In other words, through Israel, everyone else in the world, all other nations would learn about who God is, what he was about, what his message was, and what his desire for them was. And they would see that in Israel. And so they literally, the nation became the intermediary between God and the rest of the world. They saw in Israel, or they were supposed to see in Israel, what God wanted the rest of the world to see about himself. In Romans chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says this that to the nation of Israel, that God committed his oracles or truth to them. In other words, through them he gave the law. Through them he gave the prophets. Through them we have the Psalms and we have other writings of the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at the Bible as a whole, the entire Bible was given through Jewish authors. So through the Hebrew people, through the nation of Israel, God imparted his word. But it was their lifestyle and how they lived in obedience to him that was supposed to be a beacon to the rest of the world, the rest of the nations around them to show them something's different about this nation. And when they started to investigate that, they would discover, oh, it's the God they worship. And as they learned about the God of Israel, then they would realize that is who they were responsible to. And that's what God intended for the nation of Israel. But they failed in that. And we know that they turned to idolatry. They started worshiping false gods. They rebelled against God. And God knew that. And so in plan A, his plan from the very beginning, he sent Jesus Christ again through the nation of Israel to carry on that purpose that God had called Israel as a whole to, to be the representation of God in, er, on earth. And that's exactly what Jesus was. He wasn't just the representation of God on earth. He was God in the flesh. 
And he, in, in essence, then fulfilled in every way that intercessory purpose that God had intended Israel to, in his message and in his life, and also in his death and in his resurrection. And so he provided everything that the rest of the world needed to be able to come to God. And now Jesus Christ has become that intercessor. And his, and his uh, mission, his, his, his uh, goal was to bring reconciliation between God and the world, to unsaved man. When Jesus went to heaven, he gave that commission to his followers, to the church. It started with the apostles, and then it was passed down to the church as a whole. And we have the responsibility now to continue that ministry of reconciliation, interceding between unsaved man and God to bring them the truth of God, how that they can know God and be reconciled to him. And so that's what Peter means when he says, we are priests. We are that middle ground, the avenue through which God has chosen to bring his message to the world so that they can come to know him as we do. That is our main purpose, to intercede between God and lost mankind. Now, we don't need to offer sacrifices on their behalf, as the priests did in the Old Testament, because Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice. He himself was not just a high priest. He is the sacrifice for sins. And so we bring to the world, through our words and our deeds, the truth of God, both about his love and about his judgment of sin. You have to include both. Because if people don't realize that they are sinful, that they are doomed, that there are wages for their sin, death, then there's no need of a Savior. And so God's love doesn't matter to people who are not guilty. But in his love, he provided a way to be reconciled, to be forgiven of that guilt, and to be brought into relationship with him. And so that's our, our purpose as priests, to be that intercessor, to bring that message through our word and our actions to an unsaved world. That's why Peter calls us a priest. And so Peter uses this word, royal, to designate us as a kingdom of priests, but we are a kingdom of priests serving under one king. And who is that king? Jesus Christ. Okay? He is not only our king, but he is our high priest. And we are under priests serving under his leadership. Now, there's two primary elements that I want to point out that make up this image of a royal priesthood. The first is that as royal priests, we serve the king, and we have direct access to the king. If you picture in your head uh, a, a kingdom with a castle and a magnificent king sitting on the throne, and we have been called to be servants in that castle, okay? And so we come into the king's presence. Do we deserve to be there because of who we are? No. But because of who has chosen us and the responsibilities he's given us and the privileges we have to be in his presence, we can come directly into his presence. We can live in the presence of the king. We serve the king of kings. And so that's the first aspect that we need to understand. We are serving the God who is the king of kings as priests. Second is the fact that as royal priests, that word royalty signifies that not only do we serve the king, but we are kings. We will rule with Jesus Christ. And we know that because as we study Revelation, when Jesus 
comes back to earth at his second coming and sets up his millennial kingdom on earth, he will bring with him all of the saints of the church, and the Revelation tells us that we will rule with him in his kingdom. So we are not just serving in the king's court, but we are going to rule with him because we are the king's family. And that makes a huge difference when it comes to how we, par- how we uh, participate in this priesthood. Now, I want to talk about ruling as a priest because those two terms don't go together normally in Scripture. The word royal here in Greek is the term basilion, which generally describes a royal household or a palace. Peter here uses it to, defi- to define or describe the royalty of the people who serve in the spiritual house. He calls it a spiritual house here in 1 Peter. And he's not just referring to royal servants, but he's referring to a royal family. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba is the same as the English word Daddy. It's a very intimate, close, related term to a father and a son, a very loving relationship. And Paul uses that. He says, you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. In other words, you know, we're always slaves. We're either going to be slaves to sin or we're going to be slaves to God. But if you picture in your mind the, the parable of the prodigal son, remember when the son finally realized the mess that he had made of his life and he came back to his father, his idea was, I'm going to crawl to my father and I'm just going to ask him, let me be a slave in your household. At least I'll have something to eat. And instead the father comes running out with his arms wide open and restores him in all glory to sonship. And that's the picture of salvation. We come to God as slaves, willing to serve, and he welcomes us in as sons. And that's what Paul says in, in, in Romans chapter 8, 15. We've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we call, we call him daddy. Literally, it's that close of a relationship. And so therefore, we are royalty ourselves, and we will reign with Christ in his kingdom. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now that's pretty clear. We are going to be priests and we're going to reign. Now one aspect of being part of the king's family then is that we are kings ourselves. We have been made kings through Jesus Christ. Now, in Bible times, we have to understand what it means by kings. They had a very common system where there would be a high king, the main king over the entire kingdom. But he would appoint under kings, lesser kings, underneath him to rule certain areas of his kingdom. Okay, some examples. uh, When Alexander the Great established the, the great Greek empire, he set up four leaders or under kings under his rule and actually after alexander died those four under kings fought amongst themselves uh, for who was going to get the the bigger part of the kingdom but that's an example of someone who sets up kings under the main king king herod in judea when jesus was born king herod was not the king king herod was just a king over judea who had been set in place there for that area by the emperor of rome So he was an under king serving under 
the, the king or the emperor of Rome. And so the picture that we get in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, is when we reign with Christ, Jesus Christ is the overall king, the king of kings. And so we are the kings that he is over. And we will each be assigned something or some part of his kingdom to rule over with him. And so we literally are kings. In Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. They sung a new song. This is talking about the 24 elders, saying, Thou art, I'm sorry, this is talking about the saints. Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So, this royal priesthood doesn't mean that we just are priests. We are intercessors between God and the world, but we are. Uh, positioned as kings in the future kingdom of Christ. And we will reign with him. And so it's this specific point that separates us from the Old Testament priesthood. It makes us totally different. In the Old Testament priesthood, those priests could not be kings. Now, there was no law that said the priest cannot be a king, specifically. But the way God determined and gave the law and set up the priesthood disqualified anybody who was a priest from being a king as well, and also disqualified anybody who was a king from being a priest. You say, well, how does that work? Well, let me go back to the beginning of Israel. Who was the king when God made Israel a nation? God himself was the king. He intended for Israel to be a theophany. In other words, to worship God as the king. He never intended for Israel to have a human king. But the people rebelled. And they came and they said, we want, to, to Samuel, they said, we want a king like all the other nations. That's not what God's plan for them was. And so God went to Samuel and he said, okay, they haven't rebelled against you. They've rebelled against me. We're going to give them what they asked for. And so God gave them Saul. And as we know, Saul didn't turn out to be a very good king. He rebelled against God as well, and God removed him eventually, and then he put in place a man after his own heart, King David. And it was King David to whom he gave the promise that the throne would never depart from his line. Now, David was from the tribe of Judah. The throne of Israel will never depart from the throne of Judah. That means that no one other than somebody from the tribe of Judah, could sit on the throne of Israel. That eliminates the Levites. Those priests could not be kings, not because there was a law that said priests can't be kings, but by default, because God said the king shall be from Judah, the priest shall be from Levi, end of story. So there were no kings and priests who were the same person in the Old Testament, except for one. And he preceded the law of God. And here's the point. We're not part of the Old Testament priesthood. We are part of another priesthood, the one that Jesus is part of. What tribe was Jesus from? Judah. That's why he qualifies to be king. 
then how can he be our high priest? Because he's not in the line of Aaron. He's not in the line of Levi. But he is in the line of Melchizedek. And that's who we have to look at. Jesus was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the law of Moses. And it's the same order in which we are made priests, which is why it doesn't matter if we're Jews or if we're Levites. We are still called priests by God because we're in the order of Melchizedek, the same as Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, who's Melchizedek? Okay, let me explain. Melchizedek is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 14. There are four kings that join together against the five kings of the, of the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these four kings come in and make battle with those kings. Uh, remember, this is where Lot lived and nearby where Abraham was with his flocks. Abraham was up in the hill country. Lot was right down in the middle of it right by Sodom and Gomorrah. Anyway, these four kings came in and made war against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and three other kings, and they conquered them and took people and cattle and all their goods and then went back to their home country. Abraham got word of this, that Lot was part of the group that suffered in this. And so he got together a whole group, uh, a mighty army of his servants, 318 men, the Bible tells us, and he snuck out in the middle of the night and came upon these five kings and overwhelmed them and recovered all the people, all the goods, all the cattle of the, that had been taken. God gave him that victory, and then he brought them back. As he's coming back, bringing all of this booty from the battle back to Sodom and Gomorrah, in Genesis chapter 14, the Bible says in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, that's the main king of the four kings, and the kings that were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then the Bible says he was priest of the Most High God. Now, here we have the only instance in the Old Testament of a man who is both a king and a priest. And his name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes and he says, he blesses Abraham and he says, Blessed be Abraham by God the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gives him a tenth of all he recovered. That was honor that he gave to Melchizedek. Now, people ask the question, well, Melchizedek, was he then God in flesh? Was he a Christophany, an early appearance of Jesus Christ on earth? Possibly. I don't believe so. He was a perfect example, a type of Jesus Christ, and we see pictures of Jesus all through the Old Testament until he comes in person. And so Melchizedek typified the position that Jesus would, would have as king and priest. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Melchizedek. This is the only time we see him except for in Hebrews. In Hebrews, it talks a lot about Melchizedek, and Jesus was in the order of Melchizedek, and we are made priests in the order of Melchizedek. But Melchizedek, it says here in Genesis 14, was the king of Salem. Salem was a small kingdom city, um, in the area where Jerusalem is now. In fact, Jerusalem was built 
on Salem, Jerusalem, okay? In Hebrew, that word Salem is pronounced shalem, and it's very close. It becomes the root word, actually, for the word you may recognize, shalom. What does shalom mean in Hebrew? It means peace, okay? So literally, Melchizedek is the king of the kingdom of peace, or named peace. Now, you might think, well, who is this Melchizedek? What is his line? We don't know. The Bible doesn't give us any record of his mother or his father or any descendants. We don't know, except Jesus Christ. So we don't know who he was, where he came from. But when you think about the Canaanites, this is the area of Canaan before Israel came, came into the land. You think Canaanites served Baal. They served a whole bunch of false gods. So how could we have this king of a kingdom of Canaan that serves the Most High God? Well, Canaanites didn't always serve false gods. In fact, we have um, we, we tend to think of Canaanites as idolater, idolatrous worshipers of false gods going all the way back as far as we can know. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, we know from historical uh, remnants and archaeological finds that the Canaanites didn't always worship false gods. In the 1920s, there was an archaeologist um, who excavated the ancient city of Ugarit in what was ancient Cana, Canaan, and he uncovered thousands of tablets that recorded all different aspects of the lives of these early people, these early Canaanites, and including their religion. And it went all the way back to the 12th century. These, these tablets uh, dated to the 12th century BC, okay? That was about 200 years before Israel came out of, I'm sorry, 200 years after Israel came out of Egypt, okay? So these tablets were written in 12th century BC, but they had historical facts going back many hundreds of years before that. So think of a history book, and that's what these tablets were. Hundreds of these tablets described the worship, the worship of Baal, but some of them also described earlier worship of a one creator God, Canaan, okay? Now, Ugarit was not far from where Jerusalem was built. And in fact, the early Canaanites, many of them worshipped the one true God. Abraham was a Canaanite, came out of the city of Ur. Melchizedek is a Canaanite, but he worshipped the one true God, just as Abraham did. And so I said, as I said, Melchizedek is this king. He not only worships the one true God, but he is a priest of the one true God. And I mentioned he's the priest of the city, or the king of the city, that is called the city of peace. Now, if we look at his name, Melchizedek, it's actually a combination of two Hebrew words. The two Hebrew words of Melchizedek are melech, which is king, and then tzedek, which means righteousness. Here we have Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who rules over the kingdom of peace. A perfect picture of Jesus Christ. And he is also the priest of the Most High God. And so here is the order of priesthood in which Jesus was established as our high priest. And Melchizedek then becomes a perfect picture of Jesus in his kingdom, 
where he literally, Jesus is the king of peace, the king of righteousness, ruling over his kingdom of peace in the millennial kingdom. But all of that is foreshadowed in Melchizedek. And so we have a priest in Melchizedek who's also a king, who reigns over a kingdom of peace, whose name literally means the king of righteousness, giving us a perfect picture of the, the, the Messiah that is to come. Psalm 110 is a messianic prophecy about Christ. It's in two stanzas. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but go, go and read Psalm 110. In the first two, stanzas, first two verses of Psalm 110, I'm sorry, the first three verses, this is the first stanza, there is a divine declaration by God that creates a king. Basically, it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies, mine, thine enemies my, thy footstool. God is telling Jesus, Stay at my right hand until I set you up as king over all of your enemies on the earth. The divine decree of, uh, of one who will be king. The second part of that psalm, verses 4 through 7, creates a divine oath that creates a priest. And that passage starts with, in verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in Psalm 110, we have a declaration by God that he will set up Jesus both as king of the earth and he will set up Jesus as priest over all the earth after the order of Melchizedek. So there is the model for the priesthood that we are in. We are not built after the model of the Old Testament priests. We are not part of that priesthood. We are part of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not a priest in the order of the Old Testament priests. He's not in the line of Aaron. He's not in the tribe of Levi. Those priests had to continue to offer sacrifices. Hebrews tells us this because they had their own sins to cover. And so the priests of the Old Testament offered sacrifices before God for their own sins, and they had to do it over and over and over and over and over because those animals were not enough to take sin away. Christ, we know, became the final perfect sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God. Now, I want to show you some irony. God set up the Old Testament priests to offer the lambs on the altar to cover sins. And when you get to, to, to the Gospels and to the end of Christ's ministry when he's crucified, who is it that sends him to the cross? The high priest of Israel, Caiaphas. And so the, in the irony of what the, the priest didn't even realize, it was the priest, the high priest of Israel specifically, who sent the Lamb of God to be sacrificed on the cross that covered his own sin and the sin of all of Israel and, in fact, the sin of the whole world. And yet it was accomplished through one of the most evil deeds that was ever committed on the face of the earth. That's God's sovereignty. That Jesus wasn't the priest in that instance. He was the Lamb because we needed a perfect sacrifice. But now God has made him a priest to intercede for us before God. And now we are made priests in that same line. The book of Hebrews goes to great length to describe Jesus Christ as both the perfect sacrifice for sin and the perfect high priest to intercede between man and God. 
Um, in Hebrews 7, it says, It is yet far more evident, for after that the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life, an eternal life. For he testifieth, Thou art priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We are not priests in the order of Aaron. We are priests in the order of the one who has eternal life. That is the difference between us and the Old Testament priests. And so when Peter refers to us as a royal priesthood, the picture is not specifically that we are to be exactly like the priests of the Old Testament. There are similarities, which we have seen in our character, in how we offer spiritual sacrifices. There's some similarities that we can learn from. But he's saying that we are made to be priests in the order of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect priest, but also the king of kings. And so not only are we priests under the order of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, but we are kings under the reign of the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And we are royal both by the aspect of who we serve and to whom we belong. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter gives us this grand picture of what it means to be a believer in the church as the priests of God. A royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. In verse 5, he calls it a holy priesthood, set apart by God to present acceptable spiritual sacrifices to him in worship and service. And in verse 9, he calls us a royal priesthood because we both belong to God as his chosen people, but we serve the King of Kings, the High Priest, Jesus Christ, as well. And so just as Jesus is both King and Priest, we also are made to be kings and priests on this earth. Now we are priests. We are the intercessors between God and unsaved man. We have the truth. We have been given the oracles of God from the Jews, thankfully, but it's right here. We have everything we need to know. And this is the message that God has given us to bring to a lost world. And in the future, we will take up our roles as kings when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on earth in the millennial kingdom. And this brings us all the way back to chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, which says that we are supposed to be holy in all manner of conversation. You say, well, how are those connected? Here's the question. Why should we be holy because God, as God is holy? The answer is because we are royal. We represent God on earth. He is our father. We are his family. We will rule with him. And if that doesn't matter to you, start looking around the world of these royal families in which their children have gone rogue and the disrepute and the shame they bring upon their family name? And so the question is this, are we those children of the king that have gone rogue and bring disrepute and shame upon his name? Or do we truly represent the king of kings and the high priest of all who is holy and who has called us to be holy so that people in the world can see him through us. And that's the important part of all of this, is what do people see when they look at you? 
We are priests, intercessors, are our lives a platform which we can use to present the truth of God to them? Or are we such a hypocrite in our lives that people wouldn't believe the truth even if we handed them a Bible? Because we're not living it. And so I leave you with this question one more time. As kings and priests of the holy God of heaven, what do people see when they look at you? Do they see a representative of the king of kings, part of his family, in all manner of your outward conduct, as Peter says in chapter 1? Do they see in every part of your life a royal priest of the Most High God? It's a great challenge. I mean, in salvation, we have great blessings, but there also is great responsibility. And we can't just step aside and put these things out of mind. And that's why Peter reminds us over and over here, We are called to be a priesthood, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood of the family of God. Are we going to live that way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word and the truth that you've given us that challenges us each day, Lord. Lord, thank you that we have the privilege of being part of your family, that we look forward to reigning with you in this earth when you set up your kingdom. And yet you've established us as priests now in the church to the world, to be representatives and intercessors, bringing them the truth of salvation and reconciliation to God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take seriously the call to holiness, knowing that we can't do it ourselves. We need to rely on your spirit, on your truth to guide us, to do the things, to live the way that you want us to. But, Lord, ultimately, we want to live so that you receive all the glory and attention. May people see you in us. So help us toward that end, we pray. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you in the work that you want to do in us so that your goal may be accomplished. And we thank you again for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. May we not take it for granted, but use it for your purpose so that you receive all the glory and praise. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing just one verse.